The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Uh, but it is a, a privilege to be able to share for a few minutes with you about uh, the trip that, that Kate and I took um, to, to Hungary um, two weeks ago. And many of you know uh, Dr. Rapp, uh, Dr. Bob and Clara Rapp, and the work that uh, he particularly has done uh, over in Hungary, um, where he started a seminary and trained a number of pastors, and where 16 pastors uh, are currently serving uh, over 20 different congregations. Some of them have multiple congregations at opposite sides of a city or in several cities nearby uh, that they're working with. Um, and so it was our privilege to go uh, and spend uh, a few days. Uh, we left on a Monday, arrived there uh, Tuesday uh, mid-afternoon, and then left early Friday morning. So you can do the calculation. It was a short trip. Uh, the upside was our bodies never really adjusted to the time zone there anyways, so uh, the jet lag wasn't too bad on the way back. We flew into Budapest and then uh, spent our time in uh, Miskolc, uh, a town about two hours from Budapest, which is where the seminary uh, that Dr. Rapp had founded uh, was located in a, uh, a complex of about four buildings. There's a, a house uh, for Imre. Uh, Imre is the pastor there, and some of you who have been here know that Imre has visited our congregation several times. Uh, so we were staying uh, with he, his family. Then there was a, another building uh, with a place of worship uh, and a place where we could gather to eat. Um, and then two more buildings sort of adjoined in an L shape that were all rooms um, that could be used uh, to stay. And so uh, we arrived, and shortly after us, uh, 16 pastors and 12 of them uh, with their families, uh, so uh, with their wives and, and children. And so in this small little uh, compound, we had... Uh, Quite a few of us, probably between 20 and 30 children, um, plus uh, these pastors and their wives and us. It was a, a married group eating in two shifts. They had about 40, 45 seats uh, to eat in their, in their room, so we ate in two shifts uh, so we could all, all get through. Um, and it was, uh, it was wonderful to be with them for, for two days. And um, I, knew, I knew that they were showing us uh, hospitality and were giving us uh, the best of everything they could offer because multiple times they emphasized, they said, now you know you're staying in the very room that Dr. Rapp stayed in when he was here. So we knew they were giving us the best that they had. Um, and they would say, you know, that chair, that was Dr. Rapp's favorite chair. You can sit in there, uh, you know. So, so they were giving us the best. The other funny thing about the time we probably, it seemed like multiple times a day, they apologized to us that we didn't have more time to go sightseeing uh, in Hungary. And as we tried to explain over and over, we can get an audio recorded tour of any building we want, I'm sure, on the internet. But to spend two days with brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in the Hungarian culture, eating with them, talking with them, being with them, that was the real, that was the real blessing. Um, and, and so we were uh, not sad at all to have our, our tourism limited. Um, the purpose of uh, the trip was to speak to the pastors about youth ministry. Many of the pastors have uh, kids that are now uh, growing into the uh, young teen age, and so we were uh, addressing questions both of 
how do we minister to teens in different situations and scenarios, but also how do we think uh, particularly about bringing our own children or children that have grown up in the church into church membership? What would that process uh, look like and, and what would be some considerations, particularly uh, in their context, uh, their churches are very small and very few of them have elders or their own sessions. So um, how do we work together um, as pastors in the country where they are and, and look at this process? And so I gave, uh, I gave two uh, talks, um, one talking about uh, an encouragement uh, of a pastor's call um, and a pastor's role in the lives of young people starting in uh, Psalm 78 with the congregation speaking God's truths to the next generation and then looking at uh, 1 Peter 5 and the call to, to elders of the church and our responsibility. And then uh, another talk on sort of uh, seven things I've learned in, in youth ministry. Um, so I gave uh, those talks, and then we had about five hours of discussion time. And the discussion was wonderful, and I look back on it and think, well, that didn't seem like five hours of discussion time. And a lot of it was because of uh, translating work. Of the 16 pastors, probably 13 of them could understand everything that I would say, or at least 90% of what I would say, a few, a few couldn't. Um, and about half of those, about six, could, could talk back to me in, in fairly fluent English. There was no real language barrier. So if you take it all, about 80% of our dialogue was, was fine without translation, but for the remainder, uh, all of our discussion was translated into Hungarian. So by the time I say something and then it's translated and they ask a question back and it's translated and, and uh, we didn't have uh, the equivalent of five hours of discussion, but it was, it was a good body of conversation uh, about... Um, Certainly youth ministry in focus there, but also some of their questions about how we as a church in Westminster and other um, Presbyterian churches here in our presbytery uh, approach ministry in a a variety of ways. And then I also had a a time to speak to their Wednesday evening Bible study or Wednesday evening evening meeting of their congregation there in Miskolk. So um, I had a chance to to speak to them and spoke on uh, Psalm 2, um, which is a picture of the nations raging but God setting his king uh, on the throne and as a, a blessing. I thought I'd just mention a few takeaways, uh, a few things that I, I think Kate and I coming back both uh, felt and, and have thought back on. First, just the, just the absolute joy and privilege to worship uh, with believers in, in another language. Um, and a picture it is to be there where we know our common bond in Christ. And uh, as I've heard others say, we have more in common with those Hungarians that we don't share a language with than I do with many people around here in Lancaster, because Christ is our, is our bond. And it was very evident um, as, as I spoke with many of them individually and as we were there as a body uh, that uh, we, were, we were one, we were united, not divided, even though uh, the only words I picked up while I was there was uh, Jesus and uh, Amen. Uh, but still, we were, we were united uh, despite uh, the language difference. Um, it, was, uh, it was a sweet time. In fact, uh, the teens, there were about 15 teens there, and uh, they had a special surprise for us on the last night, and that was they had learned uh, When Peace Like a River uh, in English, and they sang it for us uh, before, we, before we left. But I think um, one of the key things that Kate and I came away with was uh, the call to pray for these men in their ministry, uh, but also the example that they are of ministering uh, in a long, faithful ministry with some incredible challenges uh, and difficulties. There's a number of them. Uh, One of them is just for churches being planted or churches starting in a a very secular society. 
It was funny, I, we talked about our societies many times, and they would say something, and I would say, oh yeah, well we feel like America's going in that direction, and they would just shake their heads and say, yeah, but you don't know anything yet. I mean, their, their society is so much further down the road of secularism. Um, and so their churches, uh, they're ministering for many years, and the fruit is small. Uh, there was one pastor, uh, Attila, who for the first three years, the only person in his congregation was his wife. So for three years, he preached to his wife only. Um, and now they have seen their congregation grow to five or six members, that particular one. He's one with two congregations. But um, this, is, this is the type of long faithfulness. Sixteen years he's been a pastor now, and, and that's the pace of fruit. And yet uh, he continues his, his faithfulness. Um, other churches uh, of, of them are certainly larger. Uh, the Budapest Church, I think, was the largest with about 40 members uh, 35, uh, 40 members. Um, but this is, this is a long-term faithfulness and waiting on the Lord for fruit in a difficult field. Um, so that was a, a wonderful testimony. There's also the challenge of uh, being surrounded by really two very uh, traditional only or nominal churches. You have the Catholic Church, which um, is there because it's always been there, but is probably more, uh, is certainly more nominal in its faith there than it is uh, here. Uh, in America, um, largely just there from from history and tradition. And then the Hungarian State Church, the Hungarian Reformed Church, which is uh, probably even a step further than our uh, our liberal mainline denominations in its uh, complete nominal uh, existence. So as they said, uh, most of the uh, state churches would have three to four hundred names on their roll books and have maybe 20 or 30 in their congregations on Sunday morning. Um, but one of the challenges is many, many people in Hungary would belong to either the Catholic Church or the Hungarian State Church. And so uh, the um, churches here that uh, Dr. Rapp has, has helped, they, they hold English camps and bring many young people to these English camps where they're exposed to the gospel. But the vast majority of these young people then at 13 or 14 are confirmed in either the State Church or the Catholic Church and thinking, well, I've been confirmed in a church. Why do I need to keep going to that church? Uh, the, the young people then uh, are, are sort of lost in the state system. And, of course, uh, there's very little growth or fruit or preaching of God's truth there. And so uh, the, the children very rarely uh, continue to hear God's word. So the, the existence of the state church is another challenge. I think because these state churches and, and the Catholic church are, are around, uh, this group of pastors is viewed almost as a small cult. Like, well, you've got the Catholic Church, you've got the state church, you can go to church there. Why would you go to this tiny, secluded little group over here? Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly uh, difficult uh, to attract people. People would certainly raise their eyebrows at someone who would, who would leave the, the larger churches and go, and go here. So there are, are certainly challenges. Um, there's also the challenge of the remnant of the Soviet era. And it was very evident as we traveled throughout Hungary that although uh, officially the Soviet era ended 25, 26 years ago, uh, it has not ended uh, for the people in the way that they live and approach uh, their lives. We were uh, at the highest point overseeing the city of uh, Miskolc and looking out over the city. And it's a beautiful valley, beautiful valley with homes uh, built throughout the valley. And you think, this is a beautiful place to live. And then cutting across the valley in this sort of scar are these 25, 10-story concrete apartment buildings where communist Russia came in and just built these concrete buildings, uh, moved people into them, tried to artificially begin industry, and said, you're all going to live in these concrete buildings. There's the complete absence of beauty, a complete absence of, of hope or, or moving forward. 
Um, and uh, so they still, the, the buildings are sort of the physical remnant uh, of, of the era, but um, the, what they have left behind still impacts the people uh, as well. Miskolc has lost close to 100,000 people. Um, it's gone from about 250,000 down to almost 100, or just over 150,000 people in the 15 to 20 years uh, af- uh, since, since sort of uh, communism uh, really lost its hold because there's nothing there. Um, the, ar- co- uh, the, the industry was artificially propped up. When communism fell, it collapsed, and there's nothing for people there. There's, there's no hope there. But uh, as the people of Romania said, well, there's no hope here, but it's worse in Romania. And then the Ukrainian pastor said, well, there's no hope in Romania, but it's worse in Ukraine. And so there, there is very little uh, economic hope, hope, hope for progress. But it's also true of uh, spiritually. The, the secular and very atheistic uh, approach of the Soviet era has left its mark on, on people. And many people do not see the need um, for, for religion or where this hopelessness does sort of open a window for, well, maybe a spiritual, maybe something spiritual would be helpful uh, there's as, as much interest in, in Eastern spiritualism uh, as there is in Christianity because there's no guidance. There's, there's a complete vacuum. There's no foundation in that country to say, well, Christianity would be a good place to start. Um, work ethic also. I was talking with one of the pastors, and he said, well, there's, there's no work ethic because we were, we're all still used to the Soviet era. So when one person goes to work, the boss says, well, do this. So they do that, and then they sit down. And the boss comes over and says, well, why aren't you doing these four other things? And they'll say, well, the boss, you didn't tell me to do those four things. And uh, he says, uh, the boss, they do what the boss tells them, and they sit down and wait. And so the bosses say, well, if that's all you're going to work, then we're only going to pay you this much. And the people say, well, if that's all you're going to pay us, then we're not going to work any harder. And so the same, the same mindset of the Soviet era is still very much at play. And so you get this picture of, of a society and a culture that's mired in much hopelessness, but also in much atheism and secularism. Um, and uh, you, you see something of the difficulty of the ministry uh, of these passages, or these, these pastors. At the same time, there's definitely fruit, um, and you see men, and we got to meet men and women in the congregation we were who have come to know Christ uh, through this church. Uh, one brief story, a, a man that I talked to was uh, a former Jehovah's Witness, and in Miskeltz there are four uh, kingdom halls of Jehovah's Witness. Well, this man was uh, a leader in one of the Jehovah's Witness uh, churches, he got together with the three other leaders of the Jehovah's Witness churches there in Miskolc and said, we're going to go around and we're going to try to convert the pastors in our town to Jehovah's Witness. So we're going to challenge them and see if they can actually defend the Trinity from Scripture. So they went out and met with 42 pastors in the town of Miskolc, all of them except for Imre going to the state church or the Catholic church. And they came to the end and said... Uh, Imre is the only one of 41 pastors who could defend the Trinity from Scripture or even have a knowledgeable conversation about the Trinity. And at this point, uh, this man uh, was uh, kind of put on the outs of his congregation for some other things, and he said, you know, I need to really rethink my beliefs in Jehovah's Witness, and and the person I should go to is Imre because he's the only one who knew what he was talking about. And so he went and talked to Imre and Miskolc and now is a believer in Christ and a member of their congregation. And so that's one story of fruit that is happening there. But I just encourage you uh, to be praying for these men, be praying for their families. Uh, The wives of of these men are lonely uh, as they try to support their husbands in ministry, try to homeschool their children, um, and have very little support uh, in doing either of them. So um, it was a blessing to be with them and also an encouragement and a call to prayer.
Well, tonight it's also our privilege to return to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're looking at chapter 5 tonight. And you may remember we didn't have an evening service last week, so it's been a few weeks now, but we're in the heart of Moses speaking to the people of Israel as they're on the border of, of the promised land before they cross the Jordan into God's land that he's giving them. And Moses is reminding them again and again of the heart and the attitude that God calls them to, the pattern of life that will be necessary for them if they're going to continue to live in the land that they're about to enter. In the last two sermons from chapter 4, we heard about the importance of doing the law, of obeying God's word, and uh, and then from Dr. Light, uh, of upholding God as God alone by fleeing idolatry. And two weeks ago in our last sermon from chapter 4, Dr. Light was really emphasizing that... uh, idolatry and disobedience go hand in hand. Uh, Disobedience to God, worshiping another God, those two are are tied to one another. And if we are worshiping a different God, we will also be disobeying all the rest of God's laws as our heart is drawn away from the one true God. And uh, tonight we're really going to hear the flip side of this truth. Tonight we're going to hear that the proper fear and worship of God goes hand in hand with obeying God's laws. Some of you may notice, uh, if you're following uh, with us here, that we've skipped over the Ten Commandments themselves. Uh, And we're doing this with the intention of going back to cover the content of the Ten Commandments when we get to the particular laws uh, in the second half of Deuteronomy. So uh, we will be coming back to the Ten Commandments, but uh, tonight we want to look at Israel's response when they uh, hear God's words speaking to them and giving them His law. So if you would, uh, turn and look with me, uh, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verses 22 through 33. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, should should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have, and has still lived. Go near, hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you, and they are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, stay here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you possess. God, I thank you for these words you have written. I pray.
pray that they would speak to our hearts, even as you spoke to Israel in the event that's being talked about by your Spirit. May you be glorified, and may we fear your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. I think it's very interesting, as you think through the history of Israel as related in the Old Testament, this may be unique in an event that has such a profound and immediate impact on the people of Israel. You think about all that Israel has gone through. Uh, you see, Israel sees ten plagues in Egypt. And yet, uh, just a few moments, a few lines in your Bible after uh, seeing the, the ten plagues, uh, Israel seems to have kind of forgotten about that. You see uh, God controlling the Red Sea and drowning an army at will. And this, it seems like, would feel, fill the, the hearts of Israel with fear. They've been guided by a pillar of fire by night, and they've had manna provided for them. They've they've seen water streaming from a rock, armies conquered, walls falling down. And you think there are plenty of awe-striking moments in the history of Israel. Plenty of times when God acts on behalf of his people in miraculous ways. But this is the moment, this is the moment that Moses recounts here in chapter 5. When God comes in thunder and lightning and speaks in a trumpet blast out of the fire from a smoking mountaintop that causes the Israelites to tremble with genuine awe and fear at the glorious power of God. In Exodus 20, when Moses first uh, was recounting this event as it happened, he says that the people were afraid, they trembled, and they stood far off, saying, Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. This event is unique in the extent of the fear and the trembling and the awe with which Israel responds to God. You think of them withdrawing, trembling, standing far off, saying, let not God speak to us lest we die. I was thinking even as we had our our little mini storm today about our our dog growing up, whenever a thunderstorm would hit, and some of you may have uh, pets who would do something similar, the dog would run to the furthest corner of the house and hide under a particular table that was in the furthest corner of the house, you know, tail down, ears back, and the dog would physically tremble in that corner of the house, as far away as he could get, it seemed, uh, from the thunder. But I'm sure if my dog could speak, he was still convinced that he was about to die. And this seems to be where Israel is. They are standing far off. They are trembling, saying, Let not God speak to us, lest we die, as they see God speak and reveal His power, His majesty, his glory. And they're shocked that they're still alive as they see this vision of God. Well, in this event where Israel is awed by God's presence and his power and his glory, I want to see three things briefly as we look through this passage. First, notice how important it is for Israel to grasp the power and glory of God. In Exodus 20, as this event had initially unfolded, Moses told the people that that this is, in fact, God's central purpose in gathering the people before him to hear his voice, is to show him his power and to give them a proper fear of his name. God, of course, will continue to use Moses as his uh, intermediary, but God's desire here in this event was to display his greatness and his majesty in such a way that Israel might gain a fear of the power and the glory of God. And as Moses retells the event here in verse 24, it seems like the Israelites are kind of getting the point. Verse 24, uh, Israel comes to Moses and says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory, 
and his greatness. I think uh, if Deuteronomy tells us anything, it's that Moses repeats things over and over, knowing that, that the people need to be reminded of the same truths. And this is no exception. Moses seems to know that this can't be a one-time acknowledgement on behalf of Israel. And so again and again, in the first 12 chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses will remind Israel as they stand at the door of the promised land of the power and the glory of the God that they've seen and the necessity of remembering the power and the glory of God. So you might think of the verses that I read as our call to worship tonight. What God has ever gone and taken a nation from the midst of another nation by signs, trials, wonders, war, a mighty hand, by deeds of great terror. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. Or you might think if you flip ahead to uh, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. In chapter 10, Moses says uh, once again a similar thing. In verse 17, the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And he concludes, you shall fear the Lord your God, for he is your praise. Again and again, Moses comes back to remind the Israelites of the power and the glory of this God. Moses' point is clear. This God is God alone. He is great. He is glorious. He has shown us that power in fighting for us, in leading us, in protecting us, and now in this moment, in speaking to us from the top of the smoking mountain. God knew that Israel needed this reminder. God knew this because it's the character of God and the power of God that gives Israel security in the face of danger. It gives them hope in the midst of hardship. It gives them obedience in the midst of temptation. See, there's no no vague principles or sort of um, uh, general truths that can set our minds at ease when true tragedy, suffering, or hardship hits. There's no sort of mantra or proverb that we can just repeat that will make us obey God's law. We need to know the character and the power and the glory of God. It's the character, power, and glory of God that gives us hope in the face of hardship, security in the face of danger, and obedience in the face of temptation. That was true for Israel as they stood at the edge of the promised land, and it's true for us as we walk the path that he's given us toward the rest that we await in his presence. What we need in the face of anxiety and fear is a reminder of who God is in his power and sovereign reign. What we need in the face of temptation is a reminder of God's glory and God's holiness and God's justice. Israel, at the border of the promised land, as they're ready to face armies and enemies and temptations, need to see the power and the glory of God. And that's what God gives them here at this moment. Of course, God also knew that Israel needed this reminder because his people so quickly forget who he is. We can hear this revelation, but it's amazing how quickly we forget what God says. You know, think back in Israel's history. Ten plagues destroy Egypt, and before the, even out of the country, they're cowering in fear at the edge of the Red Sea. And then they see the Red Sea parted, and Egyptians, the Egyptian army uh, uh, slaughtered. And one chapter later, they're afraid they're going to die in the desert and that God's abandoned them there. Moses doesn't even make it down from the top of Sinai with the tablets of God's law before Israel's molding the golden calf. And of course, we follow Israel's pattern with great efficiency. 
I mean, think, think about our own lives. We hear God's Word on Sunday morning, and how many times have we been arguing in the car on the way home from church about whether lunch is going to be ready or not? We know how quickly we forget God's Word. We know how quickly we slip into temptation. Or maybe you think about prayer, and we, we rejoice that God answered our prayer the way we wanted Him to until an hour later when another prayer we prayed isn't answered the way we wanted it to. We follow in Israel's steps, and so we, just like Israel, need to be reminded over and over again, this is God. Remember His glory, His power, His greatness, His character. That is what will root us and ground us in the face of the trial and hardship and danger and temptation that we face. So this event is significant, first of all, because it gives Israel and it gives us this vision of who God is and all of His glory and all of His greatness and Israel, and we need it so badly. Well, second, and very much related to this, this moment is significant, this event is significant because of Israel's response when they see God's glory. Yes, Israel trembles in amazement that they are even alive after this display of glory. You wonder how significant this vision of God must have been to bring a people to the point of saying, wow, I can't believe I'm still living in the face of such awesomeness. That's where Israel is. But the key to their response comes in verse 27. Look down to 27. When Israel sees who God is, what is their response to Moses? They say, go near, hear all that the Lord our God will say. Moses, go, and then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And what do they say? We will do it. We will hear it, and we will do it. A proper fear of the Lord leads to a proper obedience of the Lord. The vision of God's glory and greatness leads Israel to a desire to obey and follow the Lord. God himself recognizes the same relationship. If you just look uh, another uh, two verses down in verse 29, God is talking to Moses and, and, and discussing Israel's response. And he says, Oh, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. The fear of the Lord leads to keeping my commandments. This connection, of course, between fearing God and obeying God is all over Scripture. It's not unique to Deuteronomy. You you think of, of Psalms and Proverbs which say over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom but walking according to the laws of God? And the root of that, the beginning of that, is the fear of the Lord. When we think uh, of the fear of God in Scripture, we almost always hear the response being to walk in His ways, to obey Him. It's an interesting connection if you think about it. Maybe my mind is just fresh off walking in the former uh, Soviet realm. But when I think of fear leading to obedience, I don't always think of a good thing. I think of, you know, if you think of uh, parents who parent by fear, or a teacher who who keeps discipline by fear, or I think of okay, uh, you know, uh, Russian citizens cowered into submission by the fear inspired by the Soviet regime. None, none of these, none of these things seem like good things. We wouldn't say, well, yeah, that's a great picture of who God is and how God uh, guides us to obedience. But I don't. But I think at the same time, we know this. So it's somewhat surprising to say, well, what's this connection here? What does it mean to say that the fear of the Lord is the root of our obedience? 
I think it's, it should be obvious that we mean something different than the picture of a Russian regime cowering citizens into submission. And yet, clearly, this vision of God's glory leads to this response. So how do we understand the fear of the Lord? How does this vision of God's glory lead to the response of obedience? Well, a lot of this comes back to what it means to fear the Lord. Maybe you've been asked, or maybe you've had a discussion at some point of what does it mean to fear the Lord? And I think many times you hear people ask this question and they immediately want to distance themselves from being afraid of God. And they'll say, well, it's not that I'm afraid or scared of him. And so they'll say something like, well, uh, the fear of the Lord means to respect him. And a number of theologians or commentators offer this response, but I have to confess that I think this is completely insufficient to reduce the fear of the Lord to mere respect. Think Think about this vision of God that we have here. Think about the vision of God speaking from the mountain in power and glory such that Israel was, was afraid that they might die because of the extent of God's glory. And, and I don't think any of the Israelites would say, yeah, what I'm feeling right now is, is some respect. It rings hollow. And I think it rings hollow throughout Scripture too. Psalm 2.11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Hebrews 10.30.31, look to the New Testament. The same is true in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 30, 31 says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So I think we have to say that the fear of the Lord includes a real fear of who God is. But at the same time, of course, it's appropriate to say that the fear of the Lord is not primarily characterized by being scared of him. God is not looking to bring his people to be scared of him. In fact, if you want to flip back to Exodus 20, when this event initially happened, I think we have such a key verse here, such a fascinating phrase that that Moses uses. Back in Exodus chapter 20. uh, Exodus chapter 20, in verse 20, so Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Hear what God says. Yes, I want you to fear me. Therefore, don't be afraid. How do we fear him and not be afraid? There is a real fear of our God, but it, is not, but, but it's, it, it begins with God saying, don't be afraid. The people are to fear God, but not, not fear him. How do we understand this? Well, I think, uh, I think the rest of Scripture helps us flesh this out. You may think perhaps of Psalm 33. Psalm 33 declares the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, that he may deliver their souls. The fear of the Lord leads to a position of security and deliverance. A proper fear of God leads to security because we're fearing a God whose power and glory is awesome and fearful is being used on our behalf. We're, we're fearing a God whose, whose power and great glory is being used that he might rescue us and secure us and deliver us. Or as it says here, the proper fear of the Lord, if we have this heart always, it will lead it to go well with us and our descendants forever. And so the fear of the Lord, I think, recognizes the awesome power, the fear-inducing person of who God is. But that doesn't lead us to be afraid because that power is then being used on behalf of those who fear him. Let's put this together. Maybe we could summarize it this way. We could say that the fear of the Lord is a proper understanding of and acknowledgement of who God is in all his power, justice, 
and sovereign reign, which leads us to a proper, humble worship and obedience. That's right where we are here in Deuteronomy 5. The fear of the Lord is a proper understanding and acknowledgement of who God is in all of his power, justice, sovereign reign. And if we have that proper understanding, it ought to lead us to humble worship and true obedience. It's fear that brings security. It's fear that brings life. Fear that leads us to the place of living long before our God. As I thought about this connection between the fear of God and security, or the fear of God and it going well with us, I had this, I had this flashback or this vision to my first week in college. I stepped into my, my first class, an English class. Uh, I was in an honors section of English, and I think the professor very quickly knew, or from his years of teaching knew, that if he's going to get a group of honors freshmen in English class, they probably think far too highly of themselves than they ought to. And a group of honors English freshmen probably are not in any frame of mind to actually learn because they think they know everything already. And so my first week in honors English was dedicated to making sure that we had no remnant of pride or arrogance or any hint that we might know something. He began, uh, he began with strict rules, heavy assignments, and class was just this long string of sarcastic comments about the arrogance of freshmen, about how freshmen always think they're going to do well but end up failing. About, and it was just this long string of sarcastic comments, and, and we're, we're trembling there. Um, and then the third day of class, the third day of class, he started out class, he pulled out his roll book, and he went person by person around the room and had us publicly answer, did you read every word of the assignment, yes or no? Did you read every word of the assignment, yes or no? And here, 60% had not read the assignment. And he's putting big frowny faces in his roll book and just going through here. I tell you, we feared that professor. But he loved us. He didn't do it because he wanted to be a nasty professor. In fact, he was one of the favorite professors of many people. He knew that he had to do that to put us in the proper posture to learn. If we were actually going to learn something in that class, we had to be knocked down and recognize our proper place. And many of us did. And I think of what God does here. He reveals himself in all of his power and his glory and his greatness and brings Israel to recognize who they are before this God. How can we even be alive before him? But he does that not to scare them to cower in submission. He does that that they might know him and that they might live long in the land, that it might go well with them, that they might obey this God. And you hear God's heart here in chapter 5, 29. Can't you hear God's heart? Oh, it's an expression of desire. Oh, that this people had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments. Why? That it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Here's Israel on the edge of the promised land. We've heard over and over again that the obedience to God's commandments is the requirement to living long in this land. If Israel wants to remain in God's presence, they must obey his commandments. So what do they need? What does God know they need on the edge of the promised land? He knows they need the reminder of who he is. They need a vision of God's glory and greatness. They need to be reminded that God is God alone. 
and to have this heart to fear him. This is the attitude God longs for in his people because it leads to obedience. He wants the response. We will hear God and we will obey him. You know, in recent years, a number of Reformed pastors and professors have written on the subject of holiness. And there seems to be some uh, dispute among in the Reformed circles of how important holiness actually is. Is grace uh, really what we need to focus on, or does living in holiness actually matter? And it strikes me, uh, as I've read some of these readings and as I've uh, appreciated much of the writing of those who have reminded us of the importance of holiness, it struck me that I can't help wondering if the low view of holiness for some is not even so much about uh, too much emphasis on grace. I wonder if our low view of holiness stems from too small a vision of God. How often are we reminded of how big God is? How many of us wake up in the morning and read our Bible and going away, go away thinking, wow, this is the God whose very words could kill us. This is because of his power and his grandeur. This is the God whose power created the heavens with, with, a, with a single word. It's the big vision of God. It's a big vision of his glory and greatness that, that leads us that leads us to a desire for holiness. When we see this God, how can we not think, how dare I be apathetic in our pursuit of holiness? How dare I be content with sin when I stand before this God who is a consuming fire? I think we, just as Israel, we need to hear God's longing for you. Brothers and sisters, God's longing for us is, oh, that we had a heart to fear him always. And so to keep his commandments, that it may go well with us. This vision of God leads to a proper response and obedience. Lastly, and briefly, I want to notice one more thing from this passage. The key point of this passage is the vision of God's glory and greatness and how that leads to the response of obedience. This last thing I want to comment is not the main point of this passage, but I think it deserves our attention. I want us to see how this passage reminds us of the unique privilege of hearing from God, the unique privilege of having God's word. As the Israelites stand in both terror and amazement at what just took place, look at at what Israel says in verse 26. In verse 26, Israel says, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have, and still lived. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God speaking from a smoking mountaintop, from the trumpet blast and the thunder? What an incredible experience. But we have those very words. We have those very words here in Scripture. That's what these words are. It's the voice of God that spoke from the thundering mountaintop. And, and it's not just these. We also have words that God spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. It laid him flat on his face. We have the words of God spoken through his prophets that led cities to repent or brought judgment on rebellious sinners. We have the words of God that he revealed to Moses about the creation of the world. And as God reminds us in Hebrews chapter 1, we have the words of God spoken through his very son. He didn't just speak to us from a mountaintop. He actually came to us 
in the person of his son and spoke more words to us. And all of these words, all of these words that God spoke to his people again and again throughout history, we now have them. We have them here in God's word. What a privilege. Here's Israel bowed down with amazement that they received these Ten Commandments and we have that and so much more and it's God graciously speaking to us over and over again, revealing himself more and more. I, I, love, I love what one commentator on Deuteronomy said. He was commenting on this passage and he said, the Bible presents an awesome approach to God's revelation that is missing from the attitude of so many of us Christians today we would do well to ask ourselves what this awesomeness should do to the way that we handle God's Word. Are we careful to read God's Word carefully so that we know what it says? Are we careful to study Scripture so that we understand it rightly? Are we careful to obey Scripture as the words and commands and desires of the awesome God? Do we take for granted this Bible because we can get them for $3 at any local bookstore? We probably have 10 of them sitting on our shelves. Sure, it's easy to take for granted. This is the awesome words of God that he has graciously revealed to us. I don't want us to miss how significant that is in this passage. Well, this passage in Deuteronomy belongs, I think, in the category of truths that we need to hear again and again and again. If, If all we heard was this passage of Scripture, it would contain a lot of things that we need. It would contain the vision of God. It would contain his desire for our holiness. It would contain the promise that that seeking God is the way that we might live well and live long. It would contain a high view of his words. We need to know again and again that our God is great. We need to remember again and again this vision of his glory and his greatness and this awe-striking vision of his holiness. We need to hear again and again the wonder that our God has spoken to us. And we need to hear again and again the call to obey this glorious God. And so I pray. I pray that this passage will be our reminder tonight and this week that maybe we'll come back to this week as we come back to God's Word. That we have, that we might have such a heart as this to fear God and to keep His commandments. That it might go well with us. That we might be suited for long life in the presence of our God forever. Let's pray. God, Perhaps some might think of God speaking to us and hear the terror of Israel and likewise be terrified. And in some way we should be, for the fear of God is a vision of an awesome power far beyond us. But there is no need to fear because this awesome God has graciously spoken His words. You have out of your grace come near and spoken to us because your desire is to use this power and this glory for our good and for our life. We fear the God of all power, that we might have life through and with the God of all power. And we know that you have made it possible, yes, by revealing your word and your laws to us, but then even more in revealing your own Son to us, and dying and rising, that we might have this long life that God wished for his people. I pray that this would be on our minds and our hearts, that we would treasure it as we treasure your word this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.